Requests for our personal lives, physical needs, forgiveness, and protection. After showing us how to refocus ourselves on God's plan and where we fit into it, Jesus proceeded to give us a template for praying about our own personal needs. He continued, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew 6, 11-13 In Luke's account, especially in some manuscripts, we have a more condensed version of this part of the model prayer. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Luke 11, 3-4, ESV In either version, these next three requests show us how we can pray about the more immediate issues in our lives, our physical needs, forgiveness from sins, and protection against evil. Give us our daily bread. When Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread, was he expecting us to pray every day specifically for baked loaves of dough? Except in extreme circumstances, of course not. Bread was a staple food of the ancient world. And in both Hebrew and Greek, we have examples where bread can refer to either a literal loaf or food in general. Here, it's fairly obvious that Jesus wasn't telling us that the only food we can request from God is bread. For that matter, we can go one step further and deduce that praying for our daily bread isn't exclusively about praying for our daily food, either. It's about praying for our daily needs. In the model prayer, bread serves as a stand-in for everything we physically require on a day-to-day basis. Food, shelter, clothing, and so on. Before giving us the model prayer, Jesus offered this comforting reminder. Your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Matthew 6 verse 8. But that raises an interesting question. Why does God expect us to ask him for the things he already knows we need? If the very hairs of your head are all numbered by God, Luke 12 verse 7, it's not as if he needs us to remind him about our needs. It's not as if he's going to forget to intervene without our help. So, What's the point? The importance of seeking daily bread. There's a clue in the time frame of this request. We pray this day for our daily bread. God doesn't ask us to pray once a week for our weekly bread. This is something we're supposed to ask for every day. Praying daily for our daily bread doesn't help God. It helps us. Jesus told the disciples, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Matthew 6.25 There's a world of difference between praying for something and worrying about it. When we're worried about something, we stress about it. We let it fill our mind and become our focus. When we pray about our needs, it helps us refocus and reframe how we see the world. It helps us remember that God is ultimately the one who provides for all of our needs, that he does so according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19, and that he does it happily, for he cares for you, 1 Peter 5.7. It helps us to remember that we are fully dependent on him for our day-to-day survival, that in him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28, and if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Job 34, verses 14 through 15. He is sustaining our very existence, 
even before we get to the subject of what we eat. The simple act of asking the God of the universe to provide for us on a daily basis makes it easier to be aware of and grateful for the blessings that He provides in our lives. Because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17 Praying for our daily needs, of course, includes the needs of our family members, as well as the needs of our spiritual brothers and sisters. Many times at church and through fellowship, we will learn of the needs and trials of our brethren, and we can remember or make a list of these to pray about regularly. Those needs may seem overwhelming to us, but our great God knows every hair on each of our heads. He is pleased when we care enough to bring the needs of others before Him. The Importance of Doing Our Part Agur asked God, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Proverbs 30 verses 8 through 9 He recognized the value of depending on God for his physical needs, and he knew that both great wealth and extreme poverty would make it hard to focus on that dependence. Agur knew the importance of asking for his daily bread, just as we also should. But asking God to take care of our needs doesn't excuse us from doing our part. Jesus promised, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. God is eager to give us good gifts, but he still expects us to ask, seek, and knock. He expects us to do honest work with our hands so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 4.28 ESV More to the point, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 ESV Even more to the point, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8 Part of praying for our daily bread is praying for God to bless our own efforts in acquiring the things we need for our day-to-day -day lives. When God blesses those efforts, we will find ourselves with the food allotted to us. The Importance of Biblical Context We can't talk about daily bread without talking about manna. As the Israelites followed God through the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, their own supplies dwindled quickly. When they faithlessly and dramatically, accused Moses of dragging them into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, Exodus 16.3, God stepped in with an incredible miracle. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 4. The Israelites called this bread manna. In Hebrew, this meant, what is it? From that day, until the day they ate from the crops of the promised land in Joshua 5 verse 12, God faithfully provided his people with bread from heaven. It sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. In a very real and very literal sense, 
They knew that if God didn't provide that day's food, they would have nothing to eat. They were completely dependent on him for their daily bread. But the manna wasn't the point. Near the end of Israel's wanderings, Moses reminded them, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness, to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, 2-3 The point was that what we physically need to survive pales in comparison to what we spiritually need to survive. Jesus explained, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats of this bread will live forever. John 6, verses 48 through 51, and verses 57 through 58. The Word of God is our spiritual sustenance and the sacrifice of Christ opened the door to eternal life. Even as we pray for our physical needs, we can't afford to forget how much we depend on the spiritual food God supplies through His living Word. That is daily bread worth praying for, too. Forgive us our sins. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ makes our forgiveness possible. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sins. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 22, 24, and 26, ESV. When we come before God and ask him to forgive our sins, it's important that we understand what had to happen to make that forgiveness available. It was no small thing for the eternal Word, who lived with and as God, to become a human being and suffer a horrific death in order to pay the penalty of our sins. It was no small thing for him to hang from a stake, bruised and bloodied, nails driven through his limbs, every breath causing him incomprehensible agony, as his lacerated back scraped against the splintered wooden pole he had been nailed to by the Roman soldiers. And it was no small thing for him to call out to God in the middle of that agony and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 34. Our forgiveness came at an incredible cost. It's important to remember that when we ask God to forgive us our sins, we're not just apologizing for those sins. We're asking to be washed in the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 We cannot afford to treat that sacrifice lightly. Coming boldly to the throne of grace. But at the same time, God doesn't expect us to live our lives continually feeling ashamed and guilty about what Jesus did willingly for us. 
In point of fact, the Bible says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 verse 8. That sacrifice was part of God's plan since the beginning. God the Father and Jesus Christ created the human race knowing that we had the capacity to sin, to reject God's perfect law, and choose a self-destructive way of life. From the moment that God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life in Genesis 2-7, Christ's sacrifice was inevitable. Mankind would sin. And without a pathway to forgiveness, God's plan for us would never be complete. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. John 15 verses 13 through 14. Jesus didn't give his life begrudgingly or reservedly. He gave it out of love. The book of Hebrews calls him the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 verse 2 ESV. The joy that was set before him. Was sitting at the right hand of God the joy that was set before Christ? If that's all it was, then there was no need for him to come and endure the cross. He had existed for eternity, having the same power and glory as the one who became the Father. There was no need for him to live and to die as a human being to attain that. What he didn't have before his crucifixion was you. Until that sacrifice, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 You were the joy set before Christ. You and the whole human race. He was eager to make us clean. He was eager to reconcile us to God the Father. He was eager to bring us into the family of God. He said that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Luke 15 verse 7. Can you imagine how much joy there was after the penalty for those sins was paid and the next phase of God's plan began? When we repent, when we pray for God's forgiveness and commit to changing our lives, we can have confidence and peace, not continuing self-loathing and shame. Forgiveness is available to us because God wants to forgive us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15-16 Accepting the sacrifice requires a change. Of course, that forgiveness is hardly a blank check to live our lives however we'd like to live them. We already saw that Jesus gave a qualifier. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. John 15, 14. But Paul drives the point home. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Romans 6, verses 1 through 2. If we're willing to accept the death of Christ as payment for our sins, then we need to look to the life of Christ to show us how we ought to be living. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Romans 6, verses 5-6, through 6, and verses 12-13. As flawed and imperfect human beings, we will still sin. We will still need to come before the throne of grace and ask God for forgiveness. But when we do, it shouldn't be as people who are actively and unabashedly pursuing a sinful lifestyle. It should be as Christians who are striving to leave behind their sinful habits. On the day of Pentecost, A.D. 31, thousands of Jews were cut to the heart, Acts 2.37, when God led them to understand their role in the death of Jesus. They asked Peter what they should do, and Peter told them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38. Baptism is our formal commitment to put off the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Colossians 3 verses 9 through 10. If we're not willing to leave our old way of life behind, then we're not really willing to seek God's forgiveness. Understand what we're repenting of. Asking for God's forgiveness requires two important things for us. First, it requires us to understand what God calls sin, and that, in turn, requires us to spend time studying His Word. It's impossible to know if we're breaking God's commandments if we don't take the time to first learn God's commandments. Second, it requires us to be honest with God and ourselves about what our sins are. It's easy to pray a generic prayer, God forgive me of my sins, without taking the time to acknowledge and understand what we've done wrong. The Greek word for repent, metaneo, is a word that involves making changes. It means to change any or all of the elements composing one's life, attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors concerning the demands of God for right living. Bill Mounts' Greek Dictionary. If our approach to repentance begins and ends with a vague request for forgiveness, we're going to have a very difficult time producing the changes God wants to see. This part of the prayer is our opportunity to talk with God about the very specific ways we've sinned against Him and others, and about the specific ways we want to change. That's a core facet of repentance. We should regret our actions, yes, but that regret should be coupled with a desire to bring ourselves into alignment with God. It's not that God is looking for a detailed, itemized list of all our sins before He's willing to forgive us. But if we get into a habit of praying for forgiveness only in a general way, it's easy to become insincere with that prayer. Taking a moment to be specific in our prayers for forgiveness helps us acknowledge what areas of our lives need to change. And as a bonus, it might give us insight into how to get those changes started. King David wrote an incredibly moving psalm of repentance after what may have been the greatest spiritual failure of his life. In the psalm, he didn't specifically name all his sins, covetousness, adultery, deceit, and murder, among others, but it's clear from his words that he was painfully aware of each of them. In Psalm 51, he prayed, Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Verses 1-3 through three. 
He pleaded, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 10. We don't have to write a psalm every time we repent of a sin, but Psalm 51 gives us some good insight into what godly repentance looks like. David laid his sins before God and asked for God's help in changing. We can do the same. That can be as straightforward as saying, God, I realize I was dishonest today, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I want to change and leave that behind me. Help me to better understand the moments in life that tempt me to lie and and give me the strength to tell the truth instead. Our sins are no secret to God, but if we can be open and honest with Him about them when we pray for forgiveness, we can begin the process of leaving them behind. As we forgive others. The model prayer includes a very important conditional statement. Jesus didn't just tell us to pray for forgiveness. He said, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Luke 11 verse 4. As if that weren't clear enough, he added this immediately after sharing the model prayer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14-15 It's not just that forgiving people is a nice thing for a Christian to do. It's an essential thing for a Christian to do. There is an enormous weight to that statement. If we're not willing to forgive those who have wronged us, God is not willing to forgive us when we wrong Him. We need forgiveness, and so we need to be forgiving others. When Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Matthew 18, 21. He probably thought he was being generous. Giving someone seven chances to stop wronging you? That is incredibly generous. From a human perspective. But it's not enough. Jesus replied, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Verse 22. The point is that there is no upper limit. God forgives us as we forgive others. And there is no upper limit to the number of times we can come before Him and ask for forgiveness. If there was, even 490 chances wouldn't be enough. Jesus continued the lesson by telling the parable of a servant who was forgiven of an astronomical debt by his master only to turn around and throw one of his fellow servants into prison over a much, much smaller debt. The New Living Translation paraphrases 10,000 talents as millions of dollars and 100 denarii as a few thousand dollars to give a sense of the scale in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. There was no way that the first servant was ever going to pay off his debt. It wasn't unlikely. It was outright impossible. When the servant begged for patience and promised to pay it all, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave his debt. Verse 27. The second servant owed the first servant a much smaller debt, a hundred denarii, something close to four months' wages for a laborer at the time. Still quite a lot of money, but absolutely nothing compared to the first servant's forgiven debt. The point here is twofold. First, There is an incredible hypocrisy in accepting forgiveness from God and then refusing to extend it to others. And second, no one in this world can possibly owe you anything remotely close to what you owe God. 
When the master found out what had happened, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Verses 32 through 34. Jesus concluded the story with the following words. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Verse 35. There's no way around it. We should not ask for forgiveness if we're not willing to give forgiveness. What's forgiven is remembered no more. In one of the Bible's passages about the new covenant, God promises, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. But what does that mean exactly? If God literally purged our forgiven sins from his memory, that would require him to be unaware of entire passages of his own inspired word. In 2 Samuel 11, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered. When he repented, God forgave him. But did God forget what David had done? No. Long after David's death, God showed patience with his royal heirs because David had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, 1 Kings 15.5. Clearly, God had not become somehow unaware of David's sin. Over the course of his life, David committed many sins. He repented of them, and God forgave him. But those sins are still very much on display in the pages of the Bible, and it's not as if God has chosen to forget those pages. It turns out that when God says he will remember our sins no more, he's talking about something a little more complicated and a lot more beautiful than simply forgetting. As humans, when we forgive someone, it can be extremely difficult to keep past history from coloring future interactions. If we forgive someone of stealing from us, we might still be hesitant to leave them unsupervised around our possessions. No matter how hard they work to change their ways, it can be hard not to treat them with some level of suspicion when it comes to the possibility of theft. God doesn't have that problem. Zachar, the Hebrew word for remember in Jeremiah 31:34, doesn't work exactly like our English word. After the flood, the Bible says that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, Genesis 8, verse 1. God hadn't forgotten about Noah. He was mindful of and turned his attention to Noah. Similarly, when God forgives our sins and remembers them no more, he chooses to stop turning his attention to them. He's not incapable of remembering our sins. He chooses not to be mindful of them or focus on them. David wrote, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 verse 12. The distance between east and west is, of course, immeasurable and infinite. That was David's point. When we repent, God removes our sins so far from us, it's like they were never there to begin with. That concept comes up again and again in the pages of the Bible. Hezekiah told God, You have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 38, 17. God likewise told Israel, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Isaiah 44, verse 22. 
He told Jeremiah of a future time when the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. Jeremiah 50 verse 20. Micah promised that God will subdue our iniquities and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19 When God forgives our sins, He doesn't just remove them from us. He has the incredible capacity to remove them from how He looks at us. It's as if God looks at us and says, I don't think of that sin when I look at you. I've removed it from you. It's not part of who you are. It's not part of how I see you. Imagine being able to do that. On a human level, it is so difficult to separate someone's past actions from who they're trying to be. But God does it with us every day. He remembers those sins no more. That's a lot more meaningful than just forgetting. The Unpardonable Sin One passage of scripture that has caused a great deal of concern and misunderstanding over the years is a warning spoken by Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Mark 3, 28-29 There's a lot to unpack in this particular statement, but it's hard to ignore the weight of one particular phrase that is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Never. We've already examined how important forgiveness is. It's vital that we also understand how to keep ourselves from entering into a state where finding forgiveness is entirely impossible. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and how does it differ from blasphemy in general? Why is this particular sin unforgivable, while all other sins are forgivable? Context is important for understanding Christ's warning in these verses. The Pharisees and scribes, who considered themselves experts of God's law, were spreading the rumor that Jesus was possessed by a demonic entity, telling people that the only reason he could cast out demons was because he was possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. See Matthew 12:24 and Mark 3:22. We know from other passages that many of the Pharisees understood that Jesus was a teacher come from God, John 3:2 because he performed miracles that would be impossible without God's help. But we also know that many of the Pharisees valued their own traditions more than the law of God. And when Jesus began challenging those traditions, they went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matthew 12, 14. In other words, when the scribes and Pharisees accused Christ of demonic possession, it wasn't because they genuinely believed it. Many of them understood that he was, at the very least, a teacher sent by God. This was not a case of simple misunderstanding. It was a vicious lie spread by leaders who valued their own social positions and religious traditions above the word of God himself. In spreading this lie, they were in danger of willfully and knowingly attributing the power of God to the power of Satan. That is the unpardonable sin. When we have our eyes open to who God is and what He's doing, and we make the conscious and willful choice to reject or misrepresent that power, we knowingly place ourselves in direct opposition to God. That sin is unforgivable because it means we've come to a place where we are not interested in seeking forgiveness. 
John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9. We cannot be forgiven if we are not willing to acknowledge our sins. And if we are opposing God with our eyes wide open, knowingly blaspheming the power of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to evil, we are certainly not interested in God's forgiveness. We go into greater detail in our article, What is the Unpardonable Sin? But for Christians who are concerned about accidentally or unknowingly cutting themselves off from God's forgiveness, here are some important sentences from that article. If you are struggling against sin and are concerned about committing the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Those who have truly committed the unpardonable sin will be so hardened in a sinful and rebellious attitude that they simply don't care or worry about God's forgiveness or the consequences of their attitude and way of living. If you're coming before God and genuinely seeking His forgiveness for your sins, then take comfort. You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Deliver us from evil. The world we live in is a far cry from the world God created for us. Ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's exactly what we've had to deal with. For 6,000 years, the human race has been deciding for itself what's right and what's wrong. And the end result is always the same. We get both, good and evil, blended together, a mixture of convoluted moral issues that make it difficult to identify where good ends and evil begins. The more the world ignores God and tries to solve problems on its own, the worse it gets. We don't get a choice about living in this world of good and evil. We're here. We were born here and we will die here. And during that time, we are going to encounter evil. But that doesn't mean we have to face it on our own. In this last section of the model prayer, Jesus emphasized the importance of asking for God's protection as we seek to obey him. Learning to tell the difference. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.20 Not everyone swaps those things intentionally. In fact, most people don't. The trouble is that Satan has spent thousands of years making it harder and harder to tell good and evil apart. Paul warned about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-14 Satan wants the world to be confused. More to the point, he wants you to be confused. He is the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Revelation 12, 9 And he is eager to deceive God's people as well. That's why it's so essential we take the time to make sure we understand how God defines the difference between good and evil. Not how the world defines it, not how we personally define it, but how the all-powerful, all-knowing God who created the universe we live in defines it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 16. 
Through his inspired word, God shows us the difference between good and evil. And intentionally or not, mixing them up produces disaster. It moves us further and further away from the life God wants for us, and our own human reasoning isn't enough to tell the two apart. If we're asking God to deliver us from evil, it's important that we understand where the line between good and evil is. We do that by spending time with God's Word, studying and learning from the passages of Scripture He preserved for us. Micah said, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 verse 8. The more time we spend with the pages of the Bible, the more we'll understand what doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly look like, and the better equipped we'll be to identify and avoid the evil in the world. Evil or the evil one? Depending on which Bible translation you're using and which gospel account you're reading, the end of the model prayer can look a little different. In the New King James Version, Matthew's account ends the prayer with these words, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew 6.13 In the English Standard Version, the prayer ends this way, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Are we supposed to pray for God to deliver us from evil or the evil one? The simple answer is both. The evil one, Satan the devil, the adversary of God's people, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 We should absolutely be seeking God's protection and deliverance from our spiritual enemy. But although Satan is the primary source of evil in the world, he is not the only source of evil. We human beings are more than capable of choosing evil, even without his influence. Zechariah 14 verses 16 through 19, for example, shows that even during a time when Satan is locked away and powerless to influence the world, people are still capable of disobeying God. Satan is happy to muddy the waters and influence our decisions, but the concept of evil is bigger than him. We need God's protection from both evil and the evil one. Taking Steps to Avoid Temptation When we pray for God's name to be hallowed, there's an expectation that we are taking the necessary steps to keep that name hallowed. Likewise, when we pray for God to keep us away from temptation, there's an expectation that we are taking the steps necessary to stay away from temptation. Temptation is a multifaceted thing. Sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Satan knows our weaknesses, and given the opportunity, he's only too eager to bring temptation to us. We don't even have to actively be looking for it. A stray thought, a chance encounter, a freak coincidence. If God allows it, that's all it takes for the devil to offer us something he knows we'll have trouble resisting. We can't do anything except pray to avoid that kind of temptation. It's entirely out of our control, so asking for God's guidance and deliverance is critically important. But that's not how all temptation works. There are some places where temptation takes up a permanent residence, and chances are good that you already know where many of those places are. They look different for everyone. For some people, it might be a physical place, like a bar or a casino. For others, it might be a more metaphorical place, a web page, a group of friends, an activity, or even a well-worn train of thought. We can pray for God's help in avoiding those places, 
but it's ultimately our responsibility to choose to avoid them. It would be foolish to ask God to keep us far from danger and then go waltzing through a minefield. It would be equally foolish to pray for God to deliver us from temptation as we're willingly headed toward the places we know we'll be tempted. Satan once brought Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, then told him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Matthew 4, 6. Satan quoted verses promising God's protection in times of danger. But Jesus replied, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 7 ESV. In other words, God's protection is not something we can call on while willfully making bad decisions. Once we can identify evil, we have a responsibility to do what's necessary to avoid evil. We have to understand where the line is and we have to steer clear of it. One thing we don't have to understand is what lies beyond that line. Knowing where God says to stop is enough. Nothing good comes from being familiar with the depths of Satan, Revelation 2.24, that lie beyond it. Staying on the right side of the line doesn't guarantee us a life free from temptation. Satan will still bring temptation to us whenever he's given the opportunity, which makes it so much more important that we continue to pray for deliverance from temptation, evil, and the evil one. Accepting that God can redirect Satan's plans It can be hard to come to terms with the fact that God allows Satan to tempt us and even cause us harm. We can pray for God's protection. We can do everything God asks of us and still encounter evil and pain in our lives. Some trials come by time and chance, Ecclesiastes 9 and 11. But the Bible also shows that some trials are attacks by Satan. God called Job a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, Job 1 verse 8. But that didn't stop God from allowing Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life, Job 2 verse 6. Why? Paul wrote, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 Not just some things, but all things, even the unpleasant, painful ones. If we know this, we also know that if God allows something to happen in our lives, it is for a purpose. And not just for any purpose, but for our good. At the end of Job's trial, he told God, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job 42, verses 3 and 5. Satan was eager for an opportunity to destroy the life of a blameless and upright man, but God had a different plan. While Satan thought he was dealing the coup de grace to Job's spiritual life, God's plan from the beginning was to bring Job into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with him. He allowed Job to suffer for Job's ultimate good. In the middle of a trial, it can be difficult to see beyond the painful moment we're experiencing, and it can be even more difficult to understand why God is allowing the moment at all. But God sees so much more than the here and now. He also has his eye on the bigger picture, a picture that includes each of us as his sons and daughters, living alongside him into eternity. The trials we experience, the evil that we sometimes have to go through, prepare us for the day that God makes us his jewels. See Malachi 3.17. After being sold into slavery, 
having his reputation slandered and spending time in prison, Joseph ultimately became second in command of all of Egypt, saving countless lives from a prophesied famine. He later told the brothers who had initially betrayed him, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. It's true that Satan is always eager to bring evil into our lives, but he can only do what God allows. And when God allows evil in our lives, he makes us a promise. It's only a stepping stone leading us toward our ultimate good. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 29-31 The kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The trouble with being human is that our perspective is so limited. Do you have a clear picture of what your life might look like a year from now? Five years? Ten? Twenty? God does. But he doesn't stop there. He's thinking of what your life might look like 20,000 years from now. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, Isaiah 57, 15. And from his infinite perspective, he considers futures so distant we can't even begin to comprehend them. All flesh is grass, he says, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 1, 24-25 He sees our physical, human lives for what they are. Temporary. Fleeting. Momentary blips on a grand, cosmic scale. But those blips are important to him. He wants our blips to continue on forever. He's not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9 he has a plan that involves offering eternity to all of us, and that plan determines what he allows to happen during our momentary blips of life. When we pray for deliverance from temptation or evil, we're not only praying for it now, but also praying for a future that will not be attained during this life. Until Jesus Christ returns to the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and until Satan the devil is bound and removed from the equation, there will be evil in this world and in our lives. Paul promised, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 God does provide those ways of escape, but even they are temporary. They last until the next temptation, the next trial, or the next reminder of the evil world we live in. But the evil world is temporary too. In the New King James Version, Matthew's account of the model prayer ends with the words, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew 6.13 Those words are missing from some Greek manuscripts, but they're a logical extension of the previous request. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our ultimate deliverance from the evil one comes when God establishes his kingdom here on earth, when he begins his unending rule and power and glory forever. Praying for deliverance isn't just about the temporary deliverance we need during this physical life. It's about the permanent deliverance we'll have as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. 